I am so glad that everybody has come along today for this special podcast. And I just readily admit that there are ways that I have heard about Dorothy Sayers for many years, but I unfortunately have not been a reader of Dorothy Sayers. So I want you to avoid my mistakes. And so to do that, I have brought in Catherine Ware, who is a, a scholar of Dorothy Sayers, and she has this great new volume out. I'm going to put it up on the screen, The Man Born to be King, and we're going to talk more specifically about it. But Catherine has her PhD from the University of St. Andrews. She's a creative artist and scholar. She is the publisher, she's the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. And so we are so gag glad, Catherine, to have you into the podcast. Yeah, great. I'm really excited to be here. Well, just tell us a little bit about yourself and that might help sure. us understand how you got to the place of um, getting so in-depth in this research about Dorothy Sayers and her plays. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I'm from Minnesota. That's where I'm uh, broadcasting from here today. Um, and I was raised Baptist and I okay. went to Bethel university here oh, yeah. also in okay. St. Paul. And then, um, and then I discovered liturgy. So I was an, I was an Anglican for about 20 years okay. and then seven years ago I became Catholic. So that's why now I'm working in a Catholic context, but I feel like I'm, you know, bilingual. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but particularly from my time, um, I, I, as an Anglican say, I got to know Dorothy L. Sayers, who is herself an Anglican um, or was an Anglican. Yeah. Um, so I first encountered the man born to be king. That was my first introduction to her work when okay. I was a student at Regent College in Vancouver. Okay. And I just picked it off a book list. And because uh, I because I my first degree was in theater. So I thought, oh, plays. Yeah, sure. This sure. Would be right up my alley. And so but that was kind of my my entrance into her work because what I love about her is that she has all kinds of different genres. So sometimes that's why sometimes people aren't as familiar with her because, uh, or they might know just part of her work. So they yes, might yes. just know her mystery novels or they might just know her work on Dante, which was like the right. last 13, 15 years of her life. Um, they might just know some of her essays, which are amazing. Um, some of her wartime writings, which were all about like, what kind of world do we want to build once this, once World War II is over? Right. Um, and then, and then she has also poetry and then all these plays. So she wrote both stage plays and radio plays. So it's, it's just a treasure trove. And, and as someone who loves doing creative work, it gives me hope that like, oh, there's always new time. There's, there's time yeah. to develop a new idea, a new genre to learn something new. Like she, um, I mean, her specialty from university was in medieval French, but she taught herself medieval Italian so that she could work on Dante. And that was in her 40s. So you think, oh, wow. well, I have plenty of time. There you go. <laughs> it's so interesting. Now, I, I think probably the way I knew her writing the most was just through the letters, like various times there'd be letters published oh, between yes. her and the Inklings and other people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of come to this podcast embarrassed that I haven't read her more. And then when I got into your book, I thought, man, I've really been missing out. What was her connection then to, I mean, it, it's kind of like through the famous uh, uh, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and then probably a connection to G.K. Chesterton as well, that mm. like th these are kind of like the, the heroes and uh, not just it, it, Christian evangelical intellectualism, and not mm -hmm. just evangelical, but across traditions, as you've already indicated. And so 
that's probably the way that I knew her the, the most. But why is it is it because of the diversity of her writings that she's not been act or maybe am I just wait somebody sitting in the dark too much? And what what is it that keeps her from people attaching to her sooner? I don't know. I mean, I think that's a that's a good question. Um, it's it's funny because during her lifetime, um, uh, as you mentioned, so she she uh, we know that she read a lot of G.K. Chesterton as a young woman. She writes yeah. in her letters back and forth with her parents, like, "Oh, you should read this." And um, and also, like ten years before he actually became Catholic, she said to her wrote to her parents, "Like, I've heard he's about to you know cross the Tiber." So yeah, um, uh, that kind of thing. So that's interesting to note. Um, but, uh, yeah, so very influenced by him. So, and then, um, she got to know Charles Williams. Yeah. I'm not really sure how, but he recommended, I think they just, I think she just responded to one of his, uh, books by writing to him. I think that's how they first connected, but then he ended up recommending her to write a play for the Canterbury festival because he had written, um, uh, what was it? Um, Anyway, his Canterbury Festival play in 19, probably 35 or 34. And then she ended up writing um, through his influence, the 1936 Canterbury Festival play um, at Canterbury Cathedral. So these cathedrals at the time were doing these big arts festivals. So she wrote a play, um, which was uh, called The Zeal of Thy House. So, but then she did get to know him more and they met in person more later. Then, um, I'm trying to think. I think it was 1943 that she got to know uh, C.S. Lewis. And um, I think because they had a mutual friend in Charles Williams. Um, and so they they got to know each other a little bit. But then once Charles Williams died, actually, they collaborated on a book of essays in his honor. Okay. Uh, and that really solidified their, their, not only their friendship, but their kind of working friendship. Because then until she died in 1957, there's lots of letters between them about the things that each of them are writing. And so, you know, because he was a medieval scholar, right? So she, right, she was working sure. on Dante a lot. So she would say, well, what do you think about this? Or ask him different questions. He wrote her things, um, tried to rope her into a couple different projects. Like he tried to get her to write a book on um, sort of against women priests um, that became his essay, you know, uh, about priestesses, I think. Um and uh, but she's like, no, no, but she gave him some advice, like, uh, you know, stick with the historic precedents, I think will probably be the strongest argument. Um, and then, yeah, so they had a fun relationship. And actually, there's a lot of fun little things like she would write him, make little drawings of her cats or her chickens, yeah. and they would go back and forth, um, joking. She she wrote a whole letter to him very early in their friendship, in the style of the screw tape letters. Oh, interesting. Because she loved that book so much. So she like created her own tempter and then wrote the letter from the point of view of her tempter to uh, Screwtape. So. Oh, interesting. <laughs> wow. Um, it's, it's fascinating. So, so how did you get, um, so you just, you, you did, I guess, in your doctoral research in, in writing on Dorothy L. Sayers. So um, I did. what yep. was your, I mean, it's, this book isn't, we're going to get into what makes it distinct, um, looking at the plays around the life of Christ, but mm-hmm. um, what was your research in specifically? Yeah. So I, um, when I was deciding on a doctoral topic, I, um, I thought of these plays because I had been using them as examples in a class I was teaching at North Central University. 
I was teaching a theology class and it was kind of theology and the arts. And so I, I would always reserve a day to read one of the plays aloud or a few scenes. And um, so as I was trying to decide what I wanted to write on, I thought, well, what's something that I, you know, at least know something about so far. <laughs> so yeah, sure. and since I had written about it in my master's, um, I thought, well, why don't I see what, you know, what research there is? And there really wasn't much at all. Okay. Um, there wasn't a book about the plays. There wasn't um, even a, a full article about the plays. It was mentioned by all her biographers because it was very popular and, you know, has been in, in and out of publication ever since 1943 um, and been, has been re-recorded by the BBC a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was mentioned, but they're just, it was, let's say there's wide open for a researcher. Okay. So what I did is um, my first thought was to, to answer a couple of questions that biographers were saying. Like they were, they were saying, oh, she really prefers the gospel of John. Yeah, and I sure. thought, okay, maybe, but how do we know that? Yeah, no one is yeah. telling me why they think that's true. So that was like a question I was sort of testing. And then um, they also said, you know, she eschews the King James version. And oh, I interesting. thought, okay. And so then, but then I found some ways actually she uses it all over the place, just not for the main parts of the dialogue, but, you know, but being able to test that. So, um, and then also her theological themes, you know, she said early on, she wanted the theme to be the kingship of Christ. And, um, and I thought, well, no one really talks about how she develops that. So yeah, that's sure. an opening. So, yeah, so I ended up doing a, a dissertation, you know, sort of a normal sort of book where a different chapter, one takes on her script, use of scripture, one yeah, on the sure. use of the King James Version. And the Coverdale Psalms, which are the psalm translations that are used in the Book of Common Prayer that Anglicans yeah. use. Um, and then her secondary sources, because she, in her introduction, she credits several books and no one, there was one study um, that someone had done at a conference on that. So I started there, but found lots of other connections Right. and then different theological themes. So, but it's the kind of book that, I mean, there's so much information there, but how can you make it useful to others? And right. so that's what is so exciting about this new edition is that I'm able to bring that information and make it useful to readers. Um, so, yeah. And the idea with the, she was approached by the BBC to develop these plays. And That's so right. when she did, she wanted to be very specific and she, she was wanting to use common English and she was wanting mm -hmm. to like really make, making Christ a character was an issue for her, right? Like that, that there, yes. there'd be challenges with that. And certainly this was a controversial set of plays like after the first set was released there was like That's a right. committee put so tell us about some of that like why why this was such a, a dramatic event or like her putting this out and what she was trying to do and then i want to get into the ways that you what you did in your volume to help us kind of like enjoy it more sure yeah so i mean it's a very interesting story um as you said the bbc uh, commissioned the plays. And she had already written one um, nativity play for the BBC that was a success. It was called He That Should Come. And just a one hour nativity play that takes place in sort of the, the yard of the inn in Bethlehem. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, a wonderful play, well loved by people. And so the BBC said, well, why don't we do a whole series of these? And the head of the BBC, um, religious department, so the head of religious broadcasting, uh, James Welch, he, um, I mean, he really had a very evangelistic 
desire. So he mm-hmm. he's saying like, we need to help the heathen of this country get to know right. who Christ is. You know, they're not reading their Bible. So why don't we put it on the radio? Um, and that kind of thing, you know? So, um, and she, you know, I mean, she is obviously a Christian, a, a very active Christian, especially at this point, she's, she's um, writing a lot of essays about spiritual themes, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, she, she's definitely understands his point of view, but she feels very clearly that her job is to write the best plays possible, Yeah, you know, and to not necessarily worry about like, am I presenting this in a seeker friendly way or something? Her whole right, theory right. is if I present who Christ is and make it real to people that he was a real person living at a real time in real situations, real people coming to him to be healed, to push back on what he's saying to, you know, eventually crucify him, then people will, you know, if I present Christ truly, right. Christ will do the work. Um, right, right, right. And uh, the, the, the theology will speak for itself in a sense. So she's famous for saying the dogma is the drama. Like Amen. if we really yes. understood what the creeds say, we yes. would be shocked and it would be know that it's like the most dramatic thing in existence Um, that God actually became man and walked among us and then died for us um, and rose again. So um, anyway, so that she, uh, right. So Welch asked her to write the plays and then um, she had some very specific things right from the beginning. She had very clear ideas. So um, as you said, she wanted to use everyday English, which uh, wasn't a a given a lot of people right, doing sure. religious material on the BBC use the King James version. Um, and, uh, but she really wanted Christ to be a character, which had yes. not been done on the right. BBC. It's so interesting. And when we think about our time with, um, all the way back to the seventies or eighties with Jesus of Nazareth to Mel Gibson to yeah. even today with the chosen, I mean, some chosen, of the same critiques absolutely. that people offer about the chosen is like yep. the way that he, they play on some of the silences or create drama. Well, I mean, this mm-hmm. is 80 years ago and she's doing yeah. the exact same thing, but that, but at, up to this point, Christ had not been a character. That's that's right. Um, and that's partly because of laws that were in place from the Reformation. Wow. Um, that, you know, there had been the mystery plays during the me- medieval times and th- the English reformers felt like that was an excess. And then, of course, we had the, the Puritan Commonwealth time, which even put a kibosh on all theater. Right. And so right. coming back after that, you know, these laws were in place that no one could um, impersonate was the word used impersonate a member of the Holy Trinity. Wow. So um, there could be, there could, there were many Christian plays, um, but you, you might have a play about Christ from the point of view of other people. So, you know, the disciples telling the story, um, but Christ wouldn't appear, or there would be a voice from off stage or yeah, sure. a light, a shaft of light that would sort of represent Christ. Um, and you can see there's, there's a, a pious intention there. People right, are wanting sure. to be respectful and not, um, you know, not make it feel blasphemous. I mean, that's how it right, felt. Sure. Um, but it also created a theological problem. It made it right. seem that Christ wasn't a real human. Um, yes. and, and kind and, of and gave docetism was something she was really, she was focused in on yeah. the docetic heresy. And this mm-hmm. was like a, she wanted to confront that and at yeah. the same time, balance out the Arian heresy as well. And is it right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a, these wonderful letters with James Welch where, 
they're kind of saying like, well, we sort of on both sides are our silly culture. There's some people that are like, oh, Jesus, he was just a good guy and a good teacher, you know, not yeah. fully God. So that's Arianism. And then other people that particularly Christians who are like, oh, he's he's so other that he's not even really human. Right. Um, and so she wanted to balance that. And I think she she tries very hard in a lot of her scenes to do that, where she'll combine a miracle with Jesus. Um you know, they think of, I mean, this is even in the scripture, but you think of the appearance in the upper room where, you know, Jesus comes through the locked door, but yeah, then yeah. he asks for ask for food and is given some broiled fish, right? So um, that there's this kind of balance of like, wow, he's yeah, yeah. doing something supernatural, but he's he's also human and, right. and both of these things are are present, so. Yeah, that and that's obviously something she's wanting to do. And so by having Jesus be a real character, this is a dramatic mm -hmm. move, and it got her in hot water. You want to tell us a little about the drama of right? I keep using the word drama, obviously. Uh, it the, is the, drama, the, yeah, tension. yeah, absolutely. Like what? What happened? What happened historically? And then we'll get into your into your actual text. Okay. Yeah. So the um, there as I said, this the laws had to do with plays. Now radio right. was kind of a new thing, but it had not been tried on the radio. Um, the part that I didn't say is that the laws were relaxed mm -hmm. um, just before World War One, And so people were allowed to have Jesus be a character, but they actually needed permission from mm -hmm. the government in order to include Jesus as a character. So they would approve scripts, that kind of thing. So radio, because of course, radio is a little more like the voice off stage in a sense, like, well, there's not a person here pretending to be Jesus. Right, right, right. Um, but they still felt like this is a big enough deal that we should get permission. So they did uh, write a letter to the Lord Chamberlain who gave official permission, which was really important because later, um, you know, despite having uh, that permission, there's still plenty of people who felt like it was, um, you know, perhaps sacrilegious to have right. these kinds of plays. So um, in 1941, the, the first play was going to be broadcast on Christmas Day, 1941. Um, and so they had a, a press conference and Sayers read a little bit of the script. Um, and it was a section where uh, Matthew, the tax collector, was there. And as she has very much unlike Chosen, she has made Matthew the, you know, the all-knowing kind of, wow. uh, you know, uh, urban guy. So he's the East End London Cockney. Um, who, you know, knows what's what. And he, you know, so she read a bit at the beginning of, of play four um, where he's kind of chiding Philip for getting a bad deal at the market. And then this is ends up being a setup for Jesus to tell a parable. But, um, but the, you know, the slang, you know, that, that, um, that Matthew uses, people were shocked. And so then, but of course this is a press conference and all these press men are there to sell papers. And yeah, so yeah. they, create these headlines that are like life of Christ plays in us slang. Yes. Yeah. Cause they like to blame anything linguistic, um, on, <laughs> on the yeah, U S yeah. um, even though it's mostly Cockney slang. Right. Um, but or you, you also highlight gangsterism, right? They oh, say yes. yeah, gangster. I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> gangster slang. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so then, um, there's this wonderful group called the Lord's day observance society full of, I'm sure, wonderful, well-meaning Christians, but <laughs> they took these headlines and, and took out huge full page ads in like 
every newspaper they could telling people to write to the BBC to protest these plays. Now, at this point, no one had heard any of them. They just heard a few lines that Sarah's read at a press conference. Um, But it, I mean, thousands of letters came to the BBC um, and uh, I've done some work in the BBC archives. And so they, they're all there, like the originals there and you can even touch them, Um, you know, but uh, my favorite is this, um, this woman writing and saying, you know, my daughter read some things out loud out of the paper and, and said, mommy, my Jesus doesn't talk that way. Oh. And, and then, and then um, her saying like nine out of 10 mothers in this small village beg and plead that you would not, you would stop this thing from going on the air. Like wow. people were very, very, um, you know, worried about it. Yeah, sure. And, sure. And people even, I mean, think 1941, right? The United States just right. entered the war, but Britain had been at war since 1939. Um, and so, you know, things things were looking very oh, grave. Yeah. Um, and so people felt like if if this is, you know, sacrilegious, God won't be pleased. And, you know, he, so there were people literally that wrote to the BBC saying like, the fall of Singapore is your fault. Stop these plays. Wow. Um, and that kind of thing. I mean, so it's very uh, causal very connection between God's judgment mm-hmm. and for 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 England violating this. And, and I think yeah. it's hard for Americans. It's okay. It's hard for me. Let's just say yeah. that I'm an American. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to realize the connection between the BBC, the Church of England, yeah. and this national identity, a Christianized mm-hmm. culture. It's yeah. so different from what we experience. That that like, this was like a a national issue for them. It seems like. That's right. Yeah, there was even um, even a, a question put in the House of Commons. Wow. So there's like a, a question time. And sometimes they show it on TV sometimes um, where any question can be addressed to the members of the House. And so there was a question saying, what are you going to do about these plays? Like, wow. should we stop them as the government? And the answer from the prime minister was like, we'll let the BBC handle this. So, okay. but, but of course, the BBC is funded by the government. So you know, right. It's very different. Connection. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very different context. Okay, I'm fascinated by I, I really enjoyed these books and or the, the plays, but your what you've done is unique because like you say, she takes the gospels and she weaves them all together. She did mm-hmm. like I don't know which one she emphasized based upon what I've read from from you, but mm-hmm. she weaves them all together, even in the very first quotation. And tell us what what makes your your work distinct and how this helps make Dorothy Sayers' work more accessible? Yeah. Well, um, thanks. I think when I started my research, I was often reading along and I would say to myself, now, which gospel is this story sure. in? And I thought, oh, I wish there was a, there were footnotes <laughs> in this edition that I had. And so that was the first kind of layer of the idea of this is saying, I wish sometime, and maybe now that I'm working on these plays, it could be my job um, to create a version where at least all the Bible references are tracked. Um, and then, of course, as I uh, you know mentioned, that I was one of my goals was to analyze how she was doing scripture. So I actually took um, uh, Kurt Alon's synopsis of the four Gospels, which is a you know it takes the four Gospels and it puts it in four columns. Right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So I actually I took that. Um, and use the same pericopes, we call the kind of chunks of biblical text. Yep, sure. And then I created a fifth column for the man born to be king so that I could track how she's using these and then how they kind of overlap. So through that, which was a very exhaustive process, um, but uh, it 
it was exciting to be able then to analyze and even numerically. So I have an article that's published on her use of the gospels, um, you know, where I'm able to say, you know, I don't have the numbers right at the top of my head, but you know, this, this many times she references Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, and this percentage of her material is from John and, or the, or the synoptic gospels, that kind of thing. Um, and so just to, just to say, I think she loves being very even. That's one of the things I, I was able to say that her favorite stories to cover, because I, then I could also look at what didn't she choose, you know, so anything oh, sure. that had to do with the end times, anything that had to do with ritual purity, because originally right. these are for children. So right, she kind right. of avoided those, those kinds of things um, or teachings on divorce or the woman caught in adultery. Um, which is significant for her, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry to, to jump in biographically yeah. what happened with her, but can you tell? I mean, that's one of the things that sometimes people bring up is she had a child out of wedlock, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, she did have um a, a short relationship with someone, a man who lived in her building. Um. When this is back in her son was born in, in January of uh, nineteen twenty four. Okay. Um. So she was. A uh, you know, younger woman working at a at a uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, advertising agency. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Um, and Benson's advertising. And um, so, but it it turns out actually he was married. He mm. had never he had not told her that. Um, and it was a very short lived sort of um, relationship anyway. But um, so she had a son that uh ended up being raised by her cousin mm -hmm. so but um when she married a couple years later he was a, her son was officially adopted by her husband gotcha yeah um so uh yeah so that's that's there it's not something that she talked about even with her closest friends uh it doesn't seem like she even told her parents um at the time because she wasn't you know she was living in london her parents were in east anglia um so yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm it's, sorry for interrupting, but but it's interesting to me that she and I think it's helpful because maybe not just for in her own biographical the, the biographical story of what's happening in her life, but also mm -hmm. this is for children and like she's she's that was the clear intention that was given at the very, her instructions and she she was glad to accommodate that and it's interesting as she's like working through this like she's craft she's bringing in different sources all along the way so the, she's even you said with the with uh what she's able to do now also you you don't you you do you decided to do more than that though than just highlight her her scriptural sources so tell us about right. that yeah so uh if you look at a page there's footnotes with all the bible references and then there are side columns um and that's where i put all the other goodies that i found put it on the screen for the people what look on youtube keep look going, at going. that right so there are things that appear on the side there might be um, excerpts from her letters because her letters back and forth with James Welch were very interesting. She'd send him a script and she'll say, you'll notice that I did this. Like, you'll notice that I've gone with the composite Mary, meaning right, Mary right. Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, the sinful woman of Luke seven, which was a, a tradition. Um, and so she's knowingly choosing that. And she, you know, she, and she says like, I know that you know scholars have been starting to say it's still pretty new at that time um, that these were different women, but I can't have all these Marys running around, <laughs> and um, I, you know, for the sake of drama, I am choosing to combine them. And frankly, you know, people like Augustine or Gregory the Great, they they thought that they probably were the same person. So I'm I'd rather be in their company. 
um, <laughs> than these newfangled modern scholars. Right. Um, no, you don't have to agree with that, but at least you can be like, what? Uh, oh, I see. Okay. At least she knew what she was doing. She was making right, a specific right. choice, not just like, oh, oops, you know? Yeah, sure. And you you show even his interactions as well at times, like where he where yeah. he say, "Oh, I get this now." Like these little, uh -huh. yeah. And so that's, that the, the letters are just delightful. And then there's also fan letters. So sometimes someone will write to her um, and either ask her to explain something or complain. Um, like one of the other things that you know stands out for readers today. Um, is uh, that she describes Jesus several times as having a gold beard or golden hair. And um, so I, when I was first going through it before I had seen this letter where she explains it, uh, I was like, oh, Dorothy, because it just <laughs> seemed, it seems so silly. Um, but so someone wrote and says, don't you know, Jesus had black hair. He you know, <laughs> lived in the Middle East. Um, and she's like, well, you know what? You're probably right. Uh, he probably did have dark hair. But I, you know, for my readers, I'm trying to help them connect to, you know, famous works of art, which often show Jesus with a kind of goldish hue. Um, and, uh, you know, like I, I chose that for the sake of yeah. drama also, like radio drama. I need something that can, you know, be reported um, audio, you know, auditorily yeah, sure. so that the, you know, the that people can get a picture in their mind as they're listening. Like, okay, what, how could someone pick out something, you know, someone there, it's like, you know, who, who is that? You know, the one getting into the water there at the, with John the baptism scene, you know, oh, oh, you mean, oh, you mean the one with the short gold beard? Um, yeah, so she sure. does that kind of thing. You know, I, I personally wouldn't choose that. Um, you know, we would, there'd be a different kind of conversation if, if uh, like, you know, Jesus in the chosen had been blonde or something. Yeah, um, sure. But, you know, it's, it's there, but at least you can now read her letter and see what she was thinking, even if you disagree with her. And she didn't even think about, and this was, this is a challenge of maybe even why there was some wisdom in not having Jesus be a character, not having hmm. Jesus be, be, now I'm not saying I'm glad, glad for this, but I, interesting, I had a conversation, a podcast with the, uh, the illustrator and storyteller of the Action Bible. Oh, and fun! It's a and it's a great and it's one of the best-selling books by that by that publisher. It's done by a guy who's worked for DC and Marvel, and it's it's a fascinating. I mean, it's it, my, and my kids loved it. But Jesus is like a superhero with biceps and all. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like <laughs> a, like a very uh, like a, looks like Superman. And yeah. so I asked him about that and rather or not he should do that. And and he's white and then uh, like I, and part of me it being a situation where often working in urban situations like i struggle with presenting jesus as one you know as if he came from one region and all this sort of thing and there's a way that you kind of want to want i want to resist some of that but he said something interesting he's like well i just wanted jesus to be as awesome as he could be to all the <laughs> kids who could read it and he's like that's just i just jesus is great and i mean it's a very simple explanation yeah but i think there's something similar it's like well if we're going to make him a character, well, we need to, he needs to have a look. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I just, I chose gold, a gold beard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, it probably wasn't anything that was like very specific, but it, but it was her desire to kind of move away from this docetic, probably spiritualized version of who Jesus had been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just like a, 
a detail that it, even from her letter, it sounds like she wasn't particularly attached to it. Um, but it was something that she kept consistent um, through the plays. You know, it's only maybe five times over the course of five plays does someone um, kind of refer to his gold hair. But, you know, does it mean like pure blonde or just sort of a little bit of gold, you know, yeah, gold flecks in with his dark hair? <laughs> who knows? Um, but yeah, so those we were talking about the the side column so the yeah, letters are did, there yeah. mm -hmm. and then um sometimes because i you know I, as i said i read all her secondary sources so she used a couple commentaries um and then some other gospel adaptations um for instance there's one like morrison's who moved the stone is something that people even read today so that was one of her sources um so where are where there are important connections where where the the author of one of the other books says something very similar or I, I think that it might have influenced her. I, I put a little excerpt or or even just a reference in the column for those who might want to look those up or just see. Um, and so, and yeah, Moffitt I mean- as well, Moffat's translation was something that she yes. went into too. Yeah, I mean, Moffat is a little harder. There's one spot, you know, where she um, she is- puts in Jesus' mouth words from the book of Proverbs about the wisdom of God um, being there at creation. Right. And um, and she uses a word that I could only find in Moffat. Um, his translation of the New Testament was playing. I was there playing with the I world, playing, too. you know. Um, and so that that's the only one for sure that I okay. think comes from Moffat. But she recommends the Moffat um translation to some other people in a letter so i know that she was at least familiar with it um but otherwise um as i mentioned she does use the king james her her um narrator character who she calls evangelist um uses mostly king james and sometimes she'll just adapt it slightly she might knit two pieces together but they're very clearly using the king james language um but otherwise, there are times where she's using the revised version, which was really the only other major version that was available at the time. Right. Um, but then also using her Greek New Testament. She and Welch go back and forth, sometimes talking about different Greek words. So we know she was using that. Um, in, in his introduction, Welch says, um, you know, she was translating from the Greek, which I think is a little strong. Um, okay. Because she, I mean, she's clearly harmonizing, so you can't just translate and harmonize at the same time but um but uh i mean she's really putting it in in her own words because she's going for this colloquial um english um for her characters um but you know but we know she's using all these things so i it's like you know she's like a, a scholar even though she's writing popular plays for the radio she's using all of these available tools to her um and and doing it really well like she didn't even have to it's a popular book. She wouldn't have had to have mentioned that she used these other books as sources, but she takes the time to, uh, you know, uh, cite them um, sort of in her introduction. And then they're there for, for us now. And I tried my best to find good connections to them. So yeah, and so those is are, not those in are sense, your book isn't exactly a, it is scholarly in the sense that it was based on your scholarly research, mm -hmm. but as you go through, it's not like footnotes and like, you're not detailing, but it's, it's clear, short, little and, and and even even the way that's noted is just through mm -hmm. underlined words so like when when right. you underline something you put a note out to the side right. that helps you understand what she is harmonizing what mm -hmm. she is bringing in from other sources and i think it certainly 
adds to the richness of it. I, I really appreciate you doing this because like I said, I'm the, I was sayers ignorant, like just seeing, reading a few <laughs> letters, but it just makes, helps me see the depths of what she did in these, hmm. um, in, in these plays. I want to re go, j- just hit two, two portions of two plays sure. um, that I think uh, highlights that made it significant to me. And part of it is I'm at this very moment reading. I, I didn't read it for a long time. The Everlasting Man. Um, I tried to read it in my 20s and I felt like it was just too much. I, I couldn't get it. And I'm, I'm coming back at it now in my 40s. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I see this a clear connection. And then also it's a, something that this scene from the very beginning, the very first play reminds me also of something in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle mm, where they're okay. describing uh, the the impact of this baby being the creator of the universe. So mm. you'll, you'll probably know where I'm coming here, but this is okay. Mary's word. This, she's quoting Mary. It's on page 72 of your book. Um, Mary says, um, I feel as though I were holding the whole world in my arms the sky and the sea and the green earth and all the seraphim. And then again, everything becomes quite simple and familiar. And I know that he is just my own dear son. If he grew up to be wiser than Moses, holier than Aaron and more splendid than Solomon, that would still be true. He will always be my baby, my sweet Jesus, whom I love. Hmm. Nothing can ever change that. Yeah. And this is highlighting, I mean, some of these, I mean, what is she doing there, even in that passage, that's indicative of the rest of this, of of these plays? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's a wonderful example of her holding together the hypostatic union of Christ's divinity and his humanity. Um, And that, I mean, in a way, you think theologically um, at the, you know, Council of Ephesus, when the title Theotokos was given to the Virgin Mary, that, that like, it's actually a Christological title, right? Of whom is she the mother? The mother of God. And so um, it's the same thing here. Like the Virgin Mary in this scene is kind of the the guarantee of the theology of who Jesus is, that she recognizes he is my son in a very human way. Um, But there's also this other part of him that is connected to um, God, you know, yes. the seraphim and the, you know, and the, the stars and whatever else she says there, um, that there's, there's this, uh, Christ two natures, both fully present, even, even as an infant. Um, yeah. Oh man. It, it, it reminds me from the last battle where there is this, I can't remember the quite the same, um, the exact words, but where they're inside the, the, not the tent, but the little cottage, and it's like the whole world is inside that, oh, little, yeah. that little area. It's like a, a similar idea. Okay, the other mm-hmm. one I wanted to highlight, and I think this hits like a, a way her interpretive techniques throughout oh. this, um, I think at least, um, is in the story of Mary and Martha, the famous kind of like Mary and Martha moment. And mm-hmm. in that, she does something really unique. Like she comes in and she's, she says to, she says, uh, Jesus says, um, highlights, like, remember this other story? I'm just going to, instead of reading it, remember this other story I told you? And it's in, she's like, you're kind of reminding me of that story. G- Jesus says, you're reminding me, reminding me of that story I told you about the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. Like, so she, that's how she gets at telling these. And then, and then Jesus in the scene of Mary and Martha tells the parable of the prodigal son. Retell yeah. the story. I, I love, I mean, this is, this is the type of thing that you have all throughout 
these plays, mm-hmm. right? And yes. I love, I love this. It gives you a chance to comment on some of the things that you love about the plays. Those are, those are two that stand yeah. out to me that like just encourage our readers, our listeners to pick this book up. Yeah. Well, that's a, it's a great example because she uses scripture in so many different ways. Um, so it could be that the scene itself shows the scene, you know, like Christ giving a talk of, you know, including a parable or whatever, or interacting with the Pharisees in John six about, you know, um, eating, eating my flesh and drinking my blood or whatever. Um, and so sometimes there's a actual, you know, dramatic presentation of the scene, but sometimes a scene is told in remembrance, like Jesus tells his first disciples about the temptation, instead of having a scene where Jesus interacts with Satan, Jesus tells the story. Um, and then they're able to kind of discuss it as they go along. And the disciples are like, oh, oh, you know what? Oh, uh, you know, so they react. And so then we get drawn into the story in a different way. And then like, for instance, the scene you're talking about um, is a perfect example. Something Sayers says in her letters that like, Jesus was a preacher. Preachers tell the same stories all the time, you know, <laughs> and in different ways. So she's actually showing there that because she says to, um, he says to Martha, um, do you remember that story I told you? Um, and she's like, oh yeah, about the, you know, the one that went, you know, into the far country and wasted all his money. And, and then he says, but did I tell you about the older brother? Wow. And then, and she says, no, the story ended with the father, you know, creating a feast. So then, then it's like, Jesus tells the story of the older brother as a way to help Martha understand her situation, um, vis-a-vis Mary. And so it's, it's interesting because it's showing that like, something that Sayers talks about, like Jesus surely used stories in slightly different ways. So that's part of how, you know, when she's looking at the gospels and seeing, you know, the slight differences between um, different accounts of the same story, you know, slightly different ending or slightly different uh, situation or whatever that, well, sure, Jesus would, of course, tell, tell the same story in a few different settings. And so there's nothing, it's not about like, which one is the, is original. Um, yeah. probably both, you know, hypothetically, he, he could have told the same story right. 50 times. Right. It's terrible. Um, so just to different, to different audiences at different times. So, yeah, but I love, I love that. And that's another one where she really blends Christ's humanity and divinity in that scene, because, um, you know, you mentioned, um, we talked earlier about the, the where he, he quotes in that same scene, uh, from the book of Proverbs. Um, right, and, right, and right. so it, but he says it and she even has uh, a, a sort of an aside for John is like a character note saying like, Ooh, he's, you know, who it sounds almost biographical, uh, you know, that it's like, yeah. Lord of whom is that? Of whom is that? Said? Yeah, I, got, I have it. Let me read it. Oh, okay. that's perfect. It, like, it says, Jesus says, dreamingly. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, of course it's a, uh, helpful to think of Jesus dreaming. I just yeah. had on, I don't know if it'll come out about the same time, a guy who um, has written a book on uh, Jim Smith on Rich Mullins, uh, okay. the Christian singer. And yeah. he wrote uh, a song about Jesus being a boy and playing and, you know, uh, little girls blushing when he walked by these type of things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's helpful to think of these things because Jesus yeah. was a real man, a real boy, but yeah. okay. So Jesus says, when he established the foundations of the earth, I was with him for, uh, with him, forming all things. And I was delighted every day playing before him, playing in the world and delighting myself among the sons of God. And then you have this great thing where you kind of like 
highlight how that's connected to Moffat's translation of Proverbs. Mm -hmm. And then it, and then he's master, a, a little startled. It sounds almost autobiographical master of whom is that said? And Jesus, then Jesus responds of the word and the wisdom of God. And then you have another link, of course, to what that, what he might be applying with the wisdom of God. Yeah. And, and this is an interpretive move that she's mm -hmm. making, but it's helping us get a fuller picture of Jesus. I love yeah. it. Yeah. But it's also paired earlier in the scene with Martha oh, asking, asking the, the, um, the disciple John, like, well, what kind of stuffing does Jesus like? <laughs> Big stuffing, olive yeah, stuffing, yeah. dates, you know, and John's like, I don't know, fig stuffing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, it's like this very human thing. Like, well, of course, of course, he, he probably had things that tasted good to him, you know, that he might've preferred olives over figs um, or vice versa. Um, and, but that paired with this very um, uh, divine moment. And she even calls it um, his God consciousness, which as a theologian, I was like, because that sounds like Schleiermacher who used that word, that sure. term God consciousness to mean like, um, instead of being truly divine, maybe Jesus just was sort of conscious of his godness and right, sort of grew right. into it, which is not what Sayers means here. She just means that he's like most conscious of being God at this moment. Um, yeah. and it kind of comes to the top. So, um, but those things together, you know, this kind of very homey, what kind of stuffing does he like? And he was there at creation. Yeah, I think it, he was playing, he was playing yeah. around like, his, yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, what you mentioned to me before we came on that the Wade Center was really helpful to you, which is at Wheaton College. Yeah. You want to just tell us a little bit about that and what's happening there and how that helped you in your research? Sure. Yeah. So this is a Wade annotated edition. So I co uh, collaborated with the Wade Center um, because they um, have the largest archive of material about Sayers, um, uh, materials of hers um, in the world. So okay. it's the place to go if you're interested in Sayers. But they also cover six other authors as well. So the four Inklings, as well as G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald. So it's a wonderful place. They have a little museum there actually with C.S. Lewis's wardrobe. Wow. Interesting. Yes. How can you beat that? I know. They have <laughs> uh, Tolkien's desk and a desk, I think that belonged to Lewis as well. And other things. They have actually Sayers eyeglasses there in the museum, Okay, um, which is kind of fun. And, um, but then there's this, this room called the reading room that is just lined with books. It's like a, a scholar's dream and big tables where you can work. And, and then, um, you can ask for them to bring up particular items from the archives in the basement, um, that you can look at there in the reading room. So that's where I looked at thousands of her pages of her letters. They have 34,000 pages Wow. of her letters. I didn't get through all of them in preparation for this book, but anything from this time period and specifically, especially looking very closely at the ones that are related to these plays back and forth with James Welch and then all the fan letters. Um, so that's uh, a wonderful, it's a, it's just a, a very fun place. And the, the reading room even has like a big fireplace with, with lions on the yeah. side and you're like, oh, I'm here. You know, so people just love to come in and, and sit there, but it's a great place to visit. They also have events, um, different scholars come. Um, they even have like summer programs for kids. It's wow. a really wonderful place. Um, you know, people that live in the Chicago area should definitely get to know it, but 
it's really worth a visit as well. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Now, if you had to recommend one uh, performance of the plays, mm. could you, can you tell us like where to go to, to find Like, is there, I, I, there's some online, mm. yeah, just on YouTube, but is there, is there one that you feel like really captures what she was after? Well, I will say that there's really only one version available. So that makes it easy. Okay, there you go. Um, and uh, as a, as a, as a Sayers person, I will ask you to please get the ones that are on Audible and okay. ignore the ones that are on YouTube because those are breaking copyright. Hello. Whoever okay. put them up should not have put them up. Um, okay. Some private person. And I'm sure the CS, uh, excuse me, the uh, Sayers um, trustees are eager to find that person who's put them on YouTube to get them down. Um, so to make it safe, but you can just buy Audible them on has... Audible and okay. then you'll have them forever and they'll be in your iTunes. And you don't have to keep going back to um, to uh, uh, YouTube. But um, so what is, sorry, all that, uh, that's my so little soapbox. Yeah. I'm glad <laughs> to know it's there. And I, I just figured because I just did a quick search, you know, okay, uh, recordings on a Google search and several came up in different places. And then there's some people mm -hmm. who just do readings. And so I mm -hmm. didn't know if, if there's any others that have been recorded. So who knows what, it, what even I saw. So I'm so glad to know, go to Audible. Right? Yeah, like, we're gonna check that Audible. Out. Um, and so, you know, you, so you can get them straight from Audible or through Amazon, which owns Audible. Um, so those are the 1967 um, recordings by the BBC. And um, I think they're, I think they're lovely. They're, I mean, they're, they're very well recorded. I love all the different voices. Um, it really gives you a sense. They are, um, you know, shortened versions of every recording that the, the, there's three different recordings that the BBC made um, and all of them are shortened. I mean, this is what, when Sarah's actually published her scripts in 1943, she was like, I can finally put back everything that I want oh, that wow. got cut okay. um, for time. So the scripts themselves are longer than any version that's recorded, but um, the, the actual, even the original scripts were about 50 minutes or 55. Um, okay. but the ones that aren't audible are like 40 to 43 minutes. I think maybe 43 is the longest. So, you know, so there are things cut, gotcha. um, and, but they're great. I, I really enjoy them, but I was going to say, but my favorite thing to do is actually just to get a group of friends together and read them aloud because that's yeah, a great that's... way to do it. So would you do that with students too? You said you've taught this book, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah. yeah. Thanks for the tips on how to access it. Cause like, it's one yeah. thing, you know, reading plays, maybe that's not something people are used to doing, but um, I, I, it just comes alive unique way. And here we yeah. just, um, we're recording this just as Lent has started. So I encourage mm -hmm. people, like, hopefully this will come out while Lent is still happening, but it'd be a great thing to do, particularly in Holy Week to work. Yes. Well, in that, I mean, that's a good connection because C.S. Lewis famously read these every year during Holy Week. Okay. Um, and it's not just something we say, like he, I mean, she sent them to him in 1943, just when they were published and he read them and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear when they were broadcast last year, <laughs> you know? Okay. So, but I love them. And then they, they were actually uh, rebroadcast many years in a row. So he probably did hear them, but, but there are letters then in, I think 1944, you know, he's like, I am rereading the man born to be King. And then a couple of years later, I am as always rereading the man born to be King during Holy week. And then, um, 
another time in the 50s, you know, it stands up to this kind of test very well. And then in 1957, when she died, um, he wrote a panegyric for her, uh, you know, kind of a tribute. And he said, I read The Man Born to be King every year during Holy Week. Wow. Um, so I recommend that. Sounds like a readers, good idea. To your listeners. C.S. Lewis did. Well, Catherine, thank mm -hmm. you so much for your time and, yeah. and for working on this book and for taking your research and making it something that can help readers understand and enjoy Dorothy Sayers even more. Every, um, I always end my podcast with a question, uh, the more to the story question, that's the name of my podcast. But I love to connect that maybe to you specifically. We know now we know more of the story behind this book and your research and Dorothy Sayers herself. But is there more to the story of Catherine Ware than is normally told? <laughs> is there, you have some hobbies that you don't get to talk about very much or something you're interested in? Um, hmm. I guess the only thing I would mention um, is that, and partly thanks to these plays, because while I was working on these plays, I also uh, wrote an album of songs about women in the Gospels. Okay. So uh, that's on my website, um, also on, you know, iTunes, Amazon. Are you a performer? Indie. Like you you sung the songs? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, I don't, you know, since COVID, it's, I, I, I haven't really done many... Um, concerts um but anyway they're they're wonderful songs i and my youtube channel actually i've turned some of them into uh, videos and that kind of thing so you can hear some of them there otherwise you can hear them on you know spotify but some of them are directly related to these plays okay. um like uh there's a i borrow something that she you know the the scene of, of james and john asking jesus um to to sit on his left and right yeah and so i'm trying to think i think I think in, is it maybe in Mark or Luke where they ask Jesus specifically? And I think it's in Matthew where their mother Salome asks okay. for them. And so I wrote a song about Salome. So I have Salome doing the asking and then have her there at the foot of the cross, but borrowing something that Sayers has John say, because um, she has John saying, you know, we didn't, he's there at the foot of the cross. We didn't know what we were asking when we, wow. when we asked to sit on your right and left, but here these spots have been taken by two thieves. Wow. Um, and so I, I put that in Salome's mouth. Um, you know, is this what, you know, is this, could this be what your, what your kingdom means? Um, oh, yeah. so it, uh, anyway, so lots of connections there, but, um, it was well, a great really to know you're a musician. Project. Yeah, they didn't come up at all. So they, you have a YouTube channel. Was it just just your name, or how how can people find out more information about you? Yep, Catherine Ware, K A T H R Y N W E H R, um, and so CatherineWare.com or just Catherine Ware at YouTube. And um, so along with some of my music stuff, I I do some other uh, videos or kind of like slideshows where I I would pair. Um, poetry or or some some thoughts um to yeah different different topics i it was sort of a a, a covid goal that i would create one a month so okay. i have slowed down um but i also have a couple of videos that relate to this book that give people kind of a quick look and then a more in-depth look at the book as well that i have put up there so that's great. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on. It's, it's really a treat to, to meet you. And thanks again for your work on this project. I'm sure it's going to help people understand Jesus better, but also appreciate Dorothy so. Sayers. So thank you thanks. for your work. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.